Scott. Go ahead and have a seat, if you would please. And kids, you are dismissed to go to Kids Church. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. My name is Tad Skinner. I'm on staff here, and Pastor Chuck is away with his family uh, celebrating Christmas, and we'll be back later this, this week, so be in prayer for him, if you would please. It's my privilege to be preaching this morning. And we had a wonderful time with our families last week. We got to go uh, visit family in Oklahoma and uh, got back on Wednesday. So glad to be back here worshiping with you again this morning. So this is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? And I'm, I'm not really talking about Christmas. Christmas is over. This, this week in between Christmas and New Year, I think is just the most wonderful time, is it not? It seems like the laziest week of the year. Uh, there's not a lot of traffic. I think a lot of people are gone. A lot of people are taking vacation. So uh, it's just uh, the best time of the year, I think. So, uh, but take heed, there's only 363 days until Christmas again. We'll be doing this all over. So if you've been attending our church the past month, you're aware that we've been uh, looking in the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalms are poems that were written uh, about 1,000 years before Christ was born. And we've specifically been looking at psalms that point towards Jesus, that talk about some aspect of, of Jesus' character or something that he, he did. So if you remember, Dr. Haney started us off uh, in early December as he showed us from Psalm 10 that Jesus is the high priest, that he is uh, the prophet. And Dr. Newkirk helped us see Christ's resurrection in the psalms and that he is, Jesus is the true cornerstone the past couple weeks. So today we'll be in Psalm 2. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Psalm 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one, should be one, under the seat in front of you, and we would love for you to take that home with you if you don't have one, and not just read it today, but read it every day. Uh, that, in that Bible, Psalm 2 is found on page 308. So Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. You can imagine it being read whenever a new king was being installed over Israel. So portions of this chapter are also quoted three times in the New Testament. It may be a familiar psalm to some of you. you may have heard parts of it before or all of it before. So it's really, though, a, a coronation psalm about the coming Messiah, a coronation psalm about the coming king, King Jesus. So to the first readers of this psalm, Jesus is entering the world. So it's saying, get ready, you must be prepared for Christ, the King. And to us, to, to readers after Jesus, to us, it's saying that Jesus has come, and you have to respond to this King. We have to respond to King Jesus. So let's read Psalm chapter 2. Again, parts of this will be familiar to some of you, I believe. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are overjoyed at this time of year that we get to specifically focus on and remember that Christ came to earth as a, as a baby. Jesus is Emmanuel. We have a, a, a with us God. God, we thank you for that, that you have, have chosen to, to come to earth to be one of us and that you've redeemed us from our sins. God, we pray that we would take this psalm and we would apply it to our lives, that this would be new to us today in a way that, that we haven't seen before and that we would be able to worship you as you, who you really are, as our true king. God, help us to set aside all the other things that we, that we allow to rule our lives and to make you our one ruler, our one king. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we continue to celebrate Christmas and continue to look at these psalms, I want us to see four things from this psalm. First, I want to see that we're all sinners. This psalm also shows, second, that, uh, that we, how God responds to us as a sinner. We'll hear God address Jesus in this psalm, and then we'll see that we have to respond. We must respond to King Jesus. So first, see that we're all sinners. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this was written 3,000 years ago, but it's, it's just as true today, isn't it? On a global scale, we, say, we see nations warring against each other. We see that in the Middle East, we see that in the Ukraine, we see that uh, all over the globe. We see a lack of peace. We see nations striving for more power against other nations. We see rulers of, of nations striving for more power, trying to gain more power. We see the powers that be, uh, they are oppressing the poor. They're taking from the poor to give to the rich. They're making decisions based on, not on the interest of their own good or of, of the good of the people, but of their own good. Not only do we see these nations, these kings of the earth, warring against themselves, we also see these kings and kingdoms setting themselves against God. Today, there's the act of suppression of the rights of Christians to worship freely. Today, there's the wanton disregard for the sanctity of human life, life that God has granted. We see that disregard at both ends of, of the spectrum. We see that babies are afforded no rights. They're ripped from their, their mother's wombs, often in horrid ways. Murder is called the privilege and right of the mother to choose what is best for her body. We see that at the other end of the spectrum, where doctors who are charged with the saying, 
First, do no harm, now being given the authority to end a person's life. So we see the nations raging against God, turning themselves against God. We see the nations rage in our media and entertainment industry as well. Now, how many fans of Downton Abbey do we have here today? Anyone dare to raise your hand? Okay. I'm not slamming you as a fan of Downton Abbey. I'm sure it's, I've never seen it. I'm sure it's a good show. But it's, it's set at the time of World War I, correct? Or around that time period. Am I right? Yes. World War I, right after World War I, something like that. And at that time, it, it's, it's supposed to be historically accurate. I think that the producers have tried to make it as historically accurate as possible, with one exception. At that time in England, religion, or a faith in God, was a huge part of, of that cultural aristocracy that's depicted in Downton Abbey. But have you noticed that there's been no mention at all of God in Downton Abbey? So they're historically accurate in every way as they depict that, that uh, aristocracy in England at that time, except in their worship of God. The producers are on record as saying that they've consciously sought to omit any reference to God in the show. That's why apparently they never show, and tell me afterwards if I'm wrong, that apparently they never show anybody sitting down to have a meal. They might join in mid-meal, during the meal, or after the prayer has already been said, but they're not going to have any reference to God in the show. Now, that may sound silly to some of you, but we could go on and on about how the nations rage, about how we have tried to extinguish God from our society. How society sets itself against the Lord and against his anointed, against God and his Messiah, against the Father and the Son. So yes, we are all sinners. We all are. But it's not just the nations. We are kings as well. We set ourselves apart as kings. We seek to be rulers of our own lives. We all, on an individual basis, we all cry out against God and we say, I will burst away from the bondage of God and cast his cords away from me. Scripture is clear that every single one of us have sinned against the holy God. We've all, we all shake our fist at God and say, no, not, not your will be done, but my will be done. I want things to be done my own way, whether that be with our thoughts or our actions, with money, with time, with our mouths, with our marriages, with parenting, with relationships. We all sin. We all fall short of the mark of holiness that God prescribes for us. Now, do you believe that? We all sin. That doesn't mean that we're all as evil as we possibly can be. But we all routinely choose to satisfy ourselves. We all routinely choose to do our own will, to please ourselves. And I confess that I do that myself routinely, every day. I sin in my thoughts. I all too often think more highly of myself than I ought and more lowly of people that I'm called to love. I sin in my actions. I'm, I'm uh, far too inconsiderate as a driver. All sin is ultimately against God. Even the seemingly small sins, even those little white lies that we tell, that's sin, and that's ultimately against God. So God, help me not to sin against you. 
So we're all sinners. We all seek to live by our own standards, our own rules, our own ways. We hold, we hold others accountable for small stuff, and we so easily excuse ourselves for those same infractions, those same things that we do, that, that other people do. We act as though we're the creator. We live as though our way is the only way. Our way is the best way. And just as an example of that, we all have standards of what's good and moral behavior, don't we? We all have a, a certain bar that anything above that bar is good behavior, anything below that bar is, is bad behavior, right? We all have our own standards. So if, if God were to say to you, you know what, I'm going to set aside my Bible, I'm going to set aside the Ten Commandments, I'm going to set aside that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, I'm going to set that aside and just judge you based on your own standards, your own bar of what's acceptable and right, how would you do in that? I would fail miserably. Like I said, I hold other people accountable when they fall below, below the bar, but when I do, I have a reason for it. It's because I'm tired. It's because they deserved it. It's because I'm in a hurry. Um, that's why I drive the way I drive. It's because I'm in a hurry. I, I deserve this, right? So we, we hold others accountable for things that we don't hold ourselves accountable to. So we would all fail if God held us just to our own standard. We'd fail miserably at that. We can't even abide by our own standards. We are all sinners. Now, how's that for a Christmas message? Sinner, right? We're all sinners. Well, let's see what God says in response to the truth that we're sinful, that we want our own way, that we plot against the ruler. We seek to overthrow God. Let's read verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, is, is that what you would expect God's response to be? Well, maybe not. We like to think of God as a warm, fuzzy teddy bear. We like to think of, the, think of him as a, a compassionate, loving grandfather who sits at a distance and watches our crazy antics. He says, oh, silly Johnny. When will he learn not to look at pornography? Or look at little Sally. When will she learn to not spread gossip not spread rumors. She just can't help herself. Or we think of God as someone who just sticks his head in the sand or looks the other way when we sin, that he doesn't notice or he doesn't care. But no, God takes sin seriously, and God will not be mocked. He sees the nations raging against his holy rule. He sees you in your sinful desires. He sees me in my lack of patience wanting things to be done my own way. And how does God respond? How does it say that God responds here? He laughs. And this is not a, a Santa Claus, ho, 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 big belly laugh. This is a laugh of derision. And just, by the way, if that's offensive to you, that God is depicted here as, as laughing, I think it's possible that you're not recognizing the nastiness and the ugliness of your sin. God sees the foolishness of the created trying to take the throne of the creator. He sees how ridiculous it is 
that we would think that we can get away with sinning against the holy God. And it is ridiculous, isn't it? When we rebel against God, we're rebelling against the almighty, the unmatched creator of everything. And you have to, to laugh a little bit at that, don't you? To think that you can actually win against God, that you can actually have your own way against God. It's comical when you think about it. The created trying to get their own way over the creator. And so the psalmist speaks of a king. And this is not a king like you and I like to think of ourselves. This is a king with a capital K. One whom God has set on Zion, on his holy hill. So what, what does that mean? What does that mean that he's set on his holy hill? Well, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is set on a hill. It's set on a series of hills, actually. So he's making it known that there's a king who's coming, who has his full backing. One who is the true king. One who is the real king. One who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. Not a, a pretender to the throne. So God is saying to the nations, you just think you're the king, but there's a real king coming, one whom I will put in his place, or put in place. So does, does any of this talk of a king seem familiar to anybody? Have you heard this, this kind of talk before? Tim Keller, a, a pastor and author, speaks about our built-in, hardwired need for a king. We are looking for a king. We're looking for, for that one who is set apart, that one who is foremost and preeminent. We, we're fascinated by that. We, we look for somebody that we can adore and, and set apart as above anybody and everybody else. We see evidence of this in the very real mythology in, in every culture around the globe. We're looking for one who is going to be that fair, compassionate, loving king. One who will rule in such a way that everyone can see, yes, he is the true king. He's worthy of my full devotion. He is just and compassionate and loving. He is, he is my everything. He's worthy of my everything. And we see that in literature and movies. I'll just give you a couple of examples. The story of King Arthur. He's the one who ruled truly and fairly. He united the kingdom. Everyone loved him. And in myth, King Arthur was the once and future king. He's coming back. We see that in the Lord of the Rings. The land faces danger. The peoples are splintered. They're disunified. They're fighting against each other. But there's a king who will come, who will unify the people, who will defeat the enemy, who will restore the land to justice. And if that's not nerdy enough for you, there's Star Wars. Um, I'm not going to talk about Episode 7. I'm not going to ruin that for anybody. So, um, Anakin Skywalker, if I can get uh, nerdy with you here for a second, was the one who was prophesied to maintain, maintain peace. He was the wise one. He was the chosen one. And then after that massive failure, uh, referring to Anakin Skywalker, not Episodes 1, 2, and 3, there was Luke. The one who is to defeat the enemy, bring peace to the galaxy. And we could go on and on. We could talk about uh, just recent things, Harry Potter, Katniss Everdeen, uh, the Greek mythology, Roman mythology. There's always been a king or somebody who is going to make everything right, put everything back together the way it's supposed to be. And I could speak at length about how we do that with politicians, how we elevate politicians, how we elevate celebrities, how we elevate athletes, to that level of royalty, that level of 
they're the ones that we're looking for to finally make everything right. We're wired to know that there's one true king. It's instilled in us. And God is telling us that you ain't it. But there is one who is coming. And so let's hear what God says about this king in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, actually, I believe that a careful reading of this psalm would show that Jesus has actually been speaking this whole psalm. This is him speaking in first person. But here in verses 7 through 9, he tells us what his father has told him. And what's he say? Well, God the Father is affirming Jesus as foremost, as highest, as preeminent. That's what he means when he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He's setting him apart as foremost, as the, the highest. So Jesus, God's son, the king, the eternally begotten, the God who has no beginning and no ending, Jesus is entering into the created realm. The king is coming. And when God says in verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, he's saying to everyone who will listen that Jesus, the Son, and God the Father are one, that they're unified, they're united. Now, when a, when a ruler sends an emissary, think about God the Father sending Jesus to earth, sending him into the created realm. When, it, when a ruler sends an emissary to another land, that emissary is going with the authority is going with a blessing, the backing of the ruler. Now, Jesus is already God, of course, but the Father here is just reiterating that fact. He's saying to Jesus, whatever you ask, it's yours. He's saying, hear this, everyone. All of the earth, every nation, belongs to Jesus. Don't mistake who is the real world ruler, not the kings that are temporarily in charge of nations, not you who believe that you're the master of your fate or the captain of your soul. Now, Jesus is the ruler and owner of everything. And so Jesus won't be denied his inheritance. And we, we've heard this kind of imagery before stated in other ways in, in Scripture. And uh, one of those is in Colossians chapter 1. You can flip over there. It'll be on the screen. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, says the same thing just in a different way. Paul says, he is the image, talking about Jesus. Paul is talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is God in the flesh. And he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the ruler of everything. And there's nothing that's beyond him, nothing that's above him. He's Lord and ruler over all. He's king 
overall. And look at verse 9 again. The psalmist says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Talking about what Jesus is going to do. That, that sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? God is talking about his king, about King Jesus, acting in justice against the sinful, breaking them with a rod of iron, smashing them like a potter's vessel. Again, Merry Christmas. But once more, God's showing us how seriously he takes sin. It's not a laughing matter to God. He doesn't laugh off our sin. He very much desires that we leave the foolishness of our ways and make Jesus the Lord and King of our lives. And don't we want God to take sin seriously? We live in a world of evil. You turn on the news and kids are being gunned down in their, their schoolroom. Christians are being beheaded. Leaders of nations are starving their people. Don't we want God to break those people with a rod of iron and to dash them like potter's vessels? We want justice as long as there's not justice for us, right? All sin deserves that. Even those little white lies deserve that because we are sinning against the holy God, the creator of everything. So there's this ominous warning in verse 9. Now, wouldn't that be horrible if the psalm ended there, if that was it, if that was the end of the psalm? It ended at verse 9, and that was, that was all that we, we got to hear about. Wouldn't it be devastating to know that the ruler and the creator of all is coming, that he's angry because we're trying to take his throne, we're trying to take what's rightfully his? That would be a horrible story. That would be a horrible ending. But Christmas isn't the the harbinger of, of sad tidings or, or it's lumps of coal. Christmas isn't a horrible holiday. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the psalm. Christmas is the promise of a king who has come down from heaven out of love to redeem the people who have lost their way. It's, it's King Arthur returning to restore the kingdom. It's Aragorn come to unite a people under his rule and authority for their own good. It's even Luke Skywalker, against all odds, defeating the dreaded enemy and restoring peace to everyone. And even the Ewoks get to dance. So the story doesn't end in hopelessness. And this psalm doesn't end in hopelessness either. Let's read the last three verses and see what it does end with. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings talking to you and me, we are all kings. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So how does this psalm end? Well, it ends with a call for you and for me to be wise. We've got a choice to make. What are we going to do with this king who has come, with King Jesus? But we're, we're also warned. We're told to serve King Jesus. We're told to remember that he has reason to be angry. We're told that taking refuge in King Jesus brings blessing. 
So while I'd like to tell you that King Arthur has come and you're along for the ride because you live in this kingdom, or Aragorn is here and because you're a human and not an orc, you get to, to experience the peace, or that Luke's here and because you live in this galaxy, the enemy is defeated, no longer has sway. That's really not the case here. Now, by the way, I said earlier that Jesus has reason to be angry. Do you agree with that? that Jesus, the king, the ruler, has reason to be angry. We are the created. He is the creator. So when we act as though we're the creator, when we give our hearts and affections to some created thing, God has reason to be angry. When we give our heart to something other than him, he has reason to be angry. God is far better than anything else that we could hope for. Anything else that we put our hope in, he's better than that. And he's worthy of our respects. He's worthy of our hearts. So let's spend just a moment more talking about this king. In the New Testament, a thousand years or so before or after Psalm 2 was written, Jesus finds the resistance. He finds the rebellion that Psalm 2 speaks of. You can see that in the Gospels. You can see that several places in Scripture. Acts chapter 4 talks about that. We won't take time to look at that, but that resistance and that rebellion culminates in the crucifixion of God's anointed. It culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus. Yet even though we're sinners and we are responsible for crucifying King Jesus, we're still given a choice. We're warned in this psalm. We can still choose to not heed that warning. We don't have to serve the Lord with fear or rejoice with trembling. We don't have to kiss the Son. We can choose to perish. We don't have to be blessed by taking refuge in God. We can reject Jesus as king. So my question this morning is, what are you choosing? Well, you're, you're in one of three camps this morning. And I want to take just a moment to, to speak to each category, each camp of people. So first, you may have just shown up this morning because it's the thing to do at Christmas. Maybe you come to church at Christmas or at Easter because that's what Americans should do. It's hot dogs, apple pie, baseball, church twice a year. Maybe you've never set foot in a church before. Or maybe you're here because a family member brought you along. You wanted to to go with them. It's a polite thing to do, to go with them when you're here visiting them over the holidays. Well, whatever the case, if you're in this camp, church is not your normal thing. And I'd say, first of all, thank you for being here this morning. We're very glad that you're here. I I hope that you've at least caught even just a small glimpse of what Christian community is about as you've worshipped with us this morning. But, friend, if that's your experience with the God of the Bible, it's either non-existent or it's it's measured on the order of, of years and months rather than days and hours, then I tell you that you're being given a great opportunity today. God is speaking directly to you this morning. Whether you'd say it this way or not, you've been living your life as though God is not king. And that simply won't won't do. Remember that we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's uh, desire, his plan, his, his holiness, his standard, his rule in our lives. And it's time for us to turn away, time for you to turn away from whatever you've been making ruler of your life, whether that's money 
or a man or career or success or personal autonomy, relationships, a child, you must realize that that's not the real king. Those things have and they will continue to fail you, but God never will. So there's countless people in the room, including myself, that would love to talk further with you about that. Stick around after the service. We'd love to talk with you about that if that's you. But there's a second group of people here today. You are a believer in Christ. You've publicly stated that you're a sinner in need of a savior. You believe that Jesus is fully God, that he's fully man, that he left heaven, that he was born a baby in a manger, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sinner's death, he took your sin upon himself, and that he rose, he conquered death, he rose from the grave. So you've trusted him as your savior, but he's really not at all your Lord. He's not ruler. Even though you've claimed Christ, even though you're here today, most every Sunday, there's still something, maybe several somethings, that are proving over and over again to have a higher priority in your life than God. So you're a Christian, but you don't always live like it. Now, isn't that almost everybody else in the room? I think so. We all have at various times things that we place above Christ. Sometimes we don't see those things so easily. So let me encourage you in two ways. If you're in this second camp, let me encourage you in two ways. First, when I mentioned that you may have something you're placing ahead of Christ, if your mind went pretty quickly to something specific, then you already know what I'm talking about. Maybe you immediately thought of something related to material possessions. Or maybe you, you thought of your child. Or maybe you immediately thought of that boyfriend or that girlfriend that you're so desperately seeking. None of those things are inherently bad or evil. But if that was you, then you need to recognize you're placing that thing, whatever it is, you're placing that ahead of Christ. We see in this passage that God is a jealous God, and that's for our good. God is committed to our holiness. He won't accept anything being placed ahead of him, and that's a good thing. Since God is good, he's our absolute best, and he's committed to helping us see that. So he doesn't want us to settle for something that's second best, something that's worse than him. So if that's you, if you're placing something as more important than Christ, then what do you do with that? Well, you acknowledge it. You confess it. You recommit to making Christ your first love. You pursue him, and there's tons and tons of ways to do that. You pray. You spend more time with God. You come to connection classes at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. You get involved in a small group, gospel, gospel community. You get involved in discipleship with somebody on a one-on-one -on -one basis. There's lots of things that you can do to grow spiritually, and we'd love to talk with you about that as well. But if you're in the second category of people and, and something didn't immediately come to mind, then let me encourage you to live in community. I'm often the last person to realize my sin, or at least the depths of my sin. I need faithful brothers and sisters who will point out, lovingly, point out where I'm sinning. We need each other for that. So look around and get involved. Get involved in a, a small group, gospel community, where you can have that type of community. You can have those people who are going to be able to, to share with you and point out your sin. Doesn't that sound wonderful, having people... <laughs> pointing out your sin, 
but so much more than that. People who will help you to pursue holiness, help you to have the life that God wants you to have. And finally, I mentioned three groups of people. So first, if you're not a believer. Second, if you're a believer, but you're placing other things above King Jesus, which I said was probably everybody else who's a Christian. But third, what if, on the off chance, you really are living out a life of faithfulness to Christ? You're following him in obedience. He's your first. He's your foremost love. What, what then? Have you just reached nirvana? You're at the pinnacle. There's nowhere else to go. You're at the top. Well, what do you do in that situation? Well, first you realize that there really is no third group. Jesus is the only one who belongs in that third group. Jesus is perfect. You're not. You haven't arrived. You won't ever arrive. Not in this lifetime. But if you're doing well in your walk with Christ, if you're really growing, if you're really pursuing him, if you're really trying to root out sin and get rid of it, then share what you know. You have a responsibility to help the rest of us that are struggling. So, like I said, get involved with other people. Share your life with them. Help us that, that maybe aren't in that third group to be able to reach that, that point where you are. Be bold in sharing your faith, your understanding of God and holiness. So regardless of which category you're in this morning, I want us to note the last verse in this psalm. It says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So can't you see this morning that we seek freedom, but we're in bondage to whatever it is that we make ruler of our lives. But it's only in the real king that we find refuge. There's only one way, there's only one place to find true refuge. Refuge in God is the ultimate protection from ultimate harm, including the wrath of God. So when we serve God, we see that God has already served us. When we kiss the Son, we find that the Son has already kissed us. And as we've just celebrated Christmas, we're looking forward to another year. Let's seek to make much of this King. He left the glory of heaven. He humbled himself by taking on humanity, taking the form of a helpless baby. He sacrificed himself loving, lovingly for us so that we might have a relationship with God, so that we could enjoy the goodness of a life under the authority of this king who loves us so much. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that we have a God who is not far off and distant, away from us. One who is not going to be involved in our lives, but one who is with us. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You have come into our lives, come into our, our world to save us. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for that gift of Jesus. God, we thank you for scripture and thank you for the way that it, it enlightens our life. God, we pray that you would help us to set aside anything that we are putting ahead of you. 
Help us to truly make you the king, the ruler, the authority in our lives. And that we would see that that is for our good, that that is something that, that gives us true life when we do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.